Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardio nerds, welcome to this joint ACC Cardio nerds narratives and cardiology series developed to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is a collaboration between the Cardio nerds, the Pennsylvania ACC chapter, and the fellows in training section. We want to thank our project mentors, Dr. Katie Burlacher, who's the president of the Pennsylvania State chapter, and Dr. Noshin Riza, who's the immediate past chair for the FIT section. Their roles as mentors, advisors, allies have been instrumental, certainly for this project, but also for Cardio nerds in general. So Dr. Burlacher and Dr. Risa, we cannot thank you enough for all you've done for us. Dr. Zarina Sharlaya is an interventional cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and is helping us study this project's impact. So thank you, Zarina. We also thank Jennifer Ray Beckman, the Pennsylvania State Chapter's executive, and Holly Regner, the chapter's project and program lead for tremendous administrative support in making this a reality. We would never have gotten off the ground without their support. And we want to especially recognize Dr. Pamela Douglas for encouraging and empowering us cardiologists to deliberately talk about and promote this important topic. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardioners. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to claim free CME credit relevant. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. So with that, my friends, join us in the coming months on Air Force Cardioners as we travel from state to state, learning from inspiring faculty and trainees representing different backgrounds, discussing topics they're passionate about and their personal narratives. Cardio Nerds, welcome back to the joint ACC Cardio Nerds Narratives and Cardiology series. We had a blast with the Massachusetts ACC chapter last month as we discussed Latinx representation in cardiology with Dr. Fidencio Saldana. And today, we're about to land in the Illinois chapter to learn about a very important topic, underrepresentation in clinical trials with Dr. Clyde Yancey. Be sure to stay tuned for a special message from Dr. Annabelle Volgman, the chapter governor. Dan, as we drop the landing gear, how's the weather down there? Well, um, if it's a pristine day with a high of 71 and a low of 53, folks, don't forget your umbrellas because the weather will get as exciting as our conversation with some thunderstorms early in this evening. Friends, please fasten your seatbelts as we prepare for the runway. As we make our approach, we are so honored and proud to introduce our... Dr. Victoria Thomas, cardiology fellow at Vanderbilt University. Victoria has had a tremendous impact on the Cardioners platform in her capacity as ambassador from Vanderbilt. In our very first conversation, she told us how passionate she was about health equity and her desire to raise awareness around this through the Cardioners network and platform. And we distinctly remember how electrifying and energizing that conversation was. Victoria, you have truly elevated the Cardioners with your energy, ingenuity, and passion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for helping us plan this wonderful session. Welcome. Thank you guys so much for just having me and just allowing me to share something that I'm super passionate about, which is cardiology and health equity. So thank you guys. And thank you all for just being amazing leaders for us nerds. So hello again to my fellow cardio nerds, and I'm very happy to be back and join our amazing founders, Dan and Amit, as I said, and especially with the super talented Northwestern FIT representative, Dr. Quentin Eumanns. Dr. Eumanns is a second year fellow and a chief fellow in the Division of Cardiology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Eumanns is a clinician, he's an educator, and a researcher with a passion for health equity, mentorship, and promoting diversity in medicine. His work is highlighting racial disparities, bias in medical education, and has been published in New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA Internal Medicine, among many other journals. Most recently, he was named one of the 2021 40 Under 40 Leaders in Minority Health by the National Minority Quality Forum. He will pursue further fellowship training in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology, where his research focus will center on the social determinants of health and heart failure and community-engaged research for heart failure prevention and optimization of treatment. We are delighted to welcome here today, and I'm super excited to meet and talk with Dr. Eumanns. Victoria, thank you so much. Dr. Thomas, I should say. You guys, I'm so excited to be here, and I am just so grateful for this opportunity to be on the Cardio Nerds. I'm a Cardio Nerd myself at heart, and so 
this is an awesome, awesome opportunity. I'm thrilled to be here. I listened to the Cardio Nerds podcast with Dr. Kavita Sharma on HefPef, and I was just like jotting down notes of pearls the entire time. And you guys are really changing the face of education in 2021. And so I'm so appreciative of you all. And I'm very excited, immensely excited to be able to introduce my career mentor, Dr. Clyde Yancey. I'm so glad he's here today. Wait, 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 one second. I thought that I was going to get to introduce him as he definitely has played such a huge role in my life and is one of my favorite impressionable mentors. And he's somewhat of a legend or the goat of heart failure to some, just like Michael Jordan. (laughs) So it's only fitting if you're going to introduce him. I at least need to play a little introduction music to introduce him. All right. All right, Quentin. All right, Dr. Humans, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> I love it. So Dr. Clyde Yancey is the Vice Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, Chief of Cardiology in the Department of Medicine, Magister Professor and Professor of Medical Social Sciences and Associate Director at Northwestern Medicine's Bloom Cardiovascular Institute. Dr. Yancey's research interests are heart failure, clinical guideline generation, outcome sciences, personalized medicine, and healthcare disparities. He is extensively published with well over 500 peer-reviewed publications and has been named annually as one of the most highly cited scientific authors worldwide. Dr. Yancey is deputy editor at JAMA Cardiology and senior section editor for heart failure at the Journal of American College of Cardiology. He serves on the editorial boards for Circulation, Circulation Heart Failure, and the American Heart Journal, and Jack Heart Failure. Dr. Yancey is a Master of the American College of Cardiology, a Fellow of the American Heart Association, a Master of the American College of Physicians, and a Fellow of the Heart Failure Society of America. He has served on innumerable clinical practice guideline writing committees and is the immediate past chair of the ACC AHA Heart Failure Guideline Writing Committee and co-chair for the ACC Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. Mr. Yancey is a former president of the AHA, and he really needs no introduction. Dr. Yancey has so many accolades, and we are just so honored and so privileged to welcome him here on our podcast today, and we're so excited for this conversation. Welcome, Dr. Yancey. So, wow. Let's dial it back a little bit, because nobody needs to start any kind of conversation with those generous introductions. I'm humbled by what everyone has said, and you've been so kind to me, but I think analogies like Goat and Legend left to others to determine, and I won't own that. But what I will is not only this opportunity to visit with you, but to tell you that I was probably a cardio nerd before you guys were even born. And I say that because you do this predominantly because you've got such passion This is really your focus. This is the way your DNA has evolved. You are a cardiologist, period. Whether it's heart failure or general or interventional, you are a cardiologist. And that's been my life's blood for the last 30 years and been counting. So I'm delighted to be here to be a part of this. And I'm delighted for us to have this conversation because what's really important and which really reflects a pivot in um, the narratives that we've heard so far, is that this is a moment that we may never have again. This is an opportunity that we need to seize. Finally, finally, after decades, we can have very purposeful conversations about real inclusion. We can think of intentional activities that would embrace those that are underrepresented in cardiology. We can be very specific about the way in which we want our world professionally to evolve and our hopes about how we want the world in which we live to evolve. Never before have we had such alignment, purpose, of motivation, of resources, and of talent. Not me, but the talent that all of you represent. Youthful talent, talent that is open-minded, talent that is tracking towards a singular goal of creating something that's better. 
there was a time where um, creating something better didn't appeal to me because I simply wanted best, period. But as I've matured and thought more about it, what's key about better and the reason why the cardio nerves is so important in your advocacy for better is because better has no top side. You can just get better and better and better and better. And what I would encourage you to do when we end this discussion and as you go into your next discussions, let that be one of your guiding principles in every production, in every thought process, in every engagement. The goal should be, how do we emerge from this better? Because I tell you, every time you have one of these conversations and you end up in a better place, imagine where we'll end up. And so let's, let's get going with this conversation, but let's have fun for just one more second. So I heard the music, and the music was really intended to be very familiar to me. It was more than familiar. It was very personal. It's very personal because as we were putting this together and kind of going around the table and visiting with each other, what I heard each one of you tell me was not your interest in structural heart disease or general cardiology or heart failure. What I heard you tell me was, this is my passion in life. These are my family members. This is how I spend my time. This is how I experience life in Baltimore. I mean, the thing that's so important here is that we're talking about what's our juice? What really makes us tick? What's, what fuels our activity? And for me, for decades, it's been music. I'm coming from the Deep South. I'm coming from South Louisiana. I started playing saxophones when I was in the fourth grade, learned the piano keyboard when I was in the fifth grade. Man, music is it. Music is it. I'm sitting in here last night, just finished clinical service, putting together my epic notes, and what am I doing but listening to live recordings for the Newport Jazz Festival. You got to have your juice, man. You got to have some juice. You can't just be about the data. You can't just be about the science, even though I am. You got to have some juice. It keeps everything in check. And so I was so pleased that Victoria pulled out that recording because it does um, make me remember to remind you that whatever you do, never lose your juice. Never lose your juice, okay? You said music is good, and that was the perfect preface to this conversation. It was music to my ears. And we too feel that we are in this unique moment of a cultural revolution, and we feel driven to better ourselves, harness that energy, and direct betterment in the world around us. But I have to say that was the first time that anyone's introduction on the Cardiners podcast received a serenade, and it's so deserved, and we are just so honored to have you with us today. But it really was an interesting choice of music. Victoria, Dr. Yancey started talking a little bit about his uh, musical talents, but why, why were you so driven to add that as the, the background to the introduction? Well, I chose that as an ode to Dr. Yancey's roots, as he mentioned, but many people do not know about this. He played the saxophone with the historically black college university, Southern University's marching band at the Sugar Bowl. And one of the conversations I had with Dr. Yancey first was like our love for HBCUs and their bands. He might not remember, but I do. And so what we're really talking about is the human jukebox. That's a trademark, the human jukebox. And I got to tell you, I actually performed with the college band when I was in high school. It's a lot of permutations that got me there. But one of the things that I really covet is having been a part of the human jukebox. If you want to have fun one night about 1 a.m. and you can't sleep, go to YouTube and search on the human jukebox. I promise <laughs> you, you will not be able to sit still. Even if you're lying in bed, you're going to be like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> so, Dr. Yancey, I'm hearing that you're quite the Renaissance man. <laughs> I'm not certain about that, but I've done a lot of life and living over my 63 years. And one of the things I've always done is that I've invested my time according to my passions. And so the things that have occupied my time are things that I care about greatly, starting with my family, particularly my two daughters. I can't even say anything else without bringing that up. And I know Quentin's got a daughter and I know he knows exactly what I'm talking about. In every other pastime, I mean, I just don't, I don't see the value 
of being half-hearted about anything. And if I'm in it, I'm in it. I love that so much, Dr. Yancey. And you touched on so many things already, but the importance of keeping everything in mind. What's the most important in your life? And I think I've learned a lot from you and family is always number one. And that's something that I take with me all the time. Dr. Yancey, you're, you're a man of, of many talents and we're, that's why we're just so excited to have you. So I've known you from medical school. If you can remember way back, I started in 2011 at Northwestern and I just remember being so excited coming to a place that had the chief of cardiology who looked like me. But that's one of the things that you look for when you're, when I was coming up, I always wanted to have a role model, someone that I could look up to. And you might not remember this, Dr. Yancey, but I emailed you and I just said, I would love to meet with you. And pretty much immediately you responded to my email and within a week I was in your office talking. Yeah, no, you. what I really remember is that we had a, um, cardiology discovery meeting ostensibly for the senior residents and this third year medical student shows up and sits in the back of the room I'm like dude this is a little early <laughs> but here we go here we go years later it's it, it's all good but I, I do remember those exchanges they were really terrific again trying to keep uh, some direction here what we're talking about is really not lighthearted conversation. What we're talking about here is the essence of life and living. You cannot have experienced the last 14 months and not step away with a keen understanding of how important it is to be connected to someone, to something, for some reason. If ever there was a moment in time to value those aspects of life that are not quantifiable, but are so real and so important, I think these are they. You've got to have indulgences that are healthy. You need to have strong commitments to family. You need to have a network of friends. And everyone's going to interpret this in their own way. And I won't go beyond this, but the last 14 months haven't convinced you of the importance of believing in something greater than self and asleep at the wheel. What that is, is for each individual to determine. But this really has been a moment in time where everyone has had to reach out and hold on to something other than work, including me. And so I think that whatever that is, we've learned the importance of it. And the, the beautiful thing about you guys is that my arc is starting to bend in a different trajectory, whereas your arc is still ascending. I think about the fact that where you are now is where I was truly 30 years ago. You have a 30-year arc. You can have a profound influence on cardiovascular medicine, on your network of family and friends, on science, on justice, equity, on fairness. You have a 30-year window. So here is the question. I'm giving you all of these statements that I want you to carry with you. But I want you to carry this statement with me. What will you do with your 30 years? I'll say that again. What will you do with your 30 years? Because that's what each of you will have. So Dr. Yancey, I think that is perfect. When you think about 30 years ago and beginning your training, what made you really go into medicine and further what made you choose cardiology as a specialty? Yeah, both of those are straightforward. And because I was so young, the answers will seems simple, but now that I reflect differently, the answers um, really reveal something about my own personal constitution. I wanted to do medicine because I grew up in a deeply segregated neighborhood. Everyone that was Black and lived in Baton Rouge lived in one of two places, either a fully segregated neighborhood in Baton Rouge or an unincorporated town just north of Baton Rouge known as Scotlandville. I lived in Scotlandville with about 20,000 others. Everybody was black. There was one physician who did everything, set fractures, delivered babies, gave immunizations, took care of heart attacks, treated cancer, everything. There was only one hospital where we could be treated. There was only one wing of that hospital 
and we had to enter that hospital by back doors, in and out. Those things get embedded in your memory, and you cannot take them away. But I knew that this one man was doing something so remarkable that I wanted to learn to do it so I could do the same thing. Cardiology had not crossed my mind, but I wanted to do what Dr. Hall did, to be the person taking care of an entire community with all of the permutations that those days invoked upon all of us. Fast forward to my freshman year at Southern University, HBCU again, Dr. Thomas, and I'm studying cell physiology. And we got to the segment on cardiovascular physiology. And I saw my professor talk about actin and myosin and how they interdigitate and catch and release. And I literally stopped the class, raised my hand and said, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. And he looked at me like, you okay? I said, I'm very much okay. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I think I was 16 when I said that. I'm 63. And guess what? That's still the coolest thing I've ever heard of. That's how I got interested in cardiology. And when I think retrospectively, maybe that's why I developed my interest in heart failure. But more importantly, when I think retrospectively, I think that there was a conscious thread that was in my mindset that was aware of all the things that were in my external community, the segregated city bus. We could not ride the same city bus as anyone else. The segregated theaters, we had to sit in the balcony to watch the movies. We couldn't go to the fast food shops and we'd have to make sandwiches and carry them in the theater because we couldn't get anything there in the theater. The number of times we would go to not a restaurant, but a cafe and still would have to eat in the kitchen could not eat in the cafe with everyone else. The number of times I got called the N-word, forget about that, but the number of times that I had direct encounters with the Ku Klux Klan, I can never forget about those. Several times as a child, as a teenager, I knew that my life was in jeopardy. And I remember having conversations with my mother about this deep sense of hatred that people seem to have for me just because I look differently. She made it very clear. I mean, there's only two responses. You can either become very angry and do what a lot of other young black men do when they're angry, or you can say, this will not define who I am. And I took the latter path. She told me something very important. She said, if they make you angry and you change your behavior, then they win. And that's what they want all along. So no matter what it is they do, don't let them see at least that you're angry. Keep your wits about you. Remember, you cannot make intelligent decisions when you're emotional. So control your space as much as you can because your best, your best tool against them is your success. Once they see that you are successful, regardless of whatever obstacles are put in your way, go. So it started with something very simple, just seeing this one man work just amazing hours, taking care of so many people. But out of that evolved an awareness that out of my differentness, I needed to emerge as somebody unique. I need to emerge as someone that can make a difference in the lives of others. So I must say that my whole career, that's what's driven me to make the greatest difference I can in the lives of the most people possible. And I still execute on that. It's at a different scale now, but it's still a very simple driver to make the greatest difference I can in the lives of the most people possible. We never really directly talked about this, but when I met you, you had such such a huge influence on me because I was just a small town Tennessee girl and I had never seen any black cardiologist my entire life. And You've heard me talk about my grandmother dying prematurely before, and there's a lot of trainees like myself when I was a second-year medical student who met you that really admire you because you are a giant, and you've made cardiology fun and inspiring, and this conversation with you is still doing that for me. And you attended Tulane University Medical School, which is 
unfortunately has been recently highlighted in the news for a discrimination lawsuit based on creating a race and gender-based hostile environment. And I'm not trying to date you, but you graduated in 1982 and you kind of talked about, but how was that for you? How do we get people to want to continue to enter medicine, especially if they might experience some form of racism or sexism? So, Dr. Thomas, thank you. Because I think the important recalibration of the question is not to think about me and anything I may have accomplished, but to think about you, to think about Quentin, to think about Dr. Reza. Think about the passion that each of you has as an early career professional. Think about the drive that you already have. I am inherently a teacher at heart. My mother was a teacher, aunts and uncles were teachers. There is nothing a teacher enjoys more than to see the enthusiasm of a next generation student and to understand that no matter how far I've come, no matter how far I can take you, my student can go to the next level. So this collaboration we have, this inspiration we have is a shared inspiration. It's not just me touching you. It's you touching me and fueling me to continue to look for people like yourself and help nudge you in a different direction. Full disclosure, I've been working with the leadership at my alma mater to address some of these very difficult issues that have transpired. And there are lots of discussions that can't be had in a public domain. But what I can tell you is that Unfortunately, this was not unexpected, not because they're bad people at Tulane, but because everything that we've experienced in the last 14 months is a product of the culture in which we live. What do you think is a culture of New Orleans, deep south, a community deeply segregated, a community with pockets of abject poverty, and a place that was home the Charity Hospital of New Orleans. This was the legacy, prototypical safety net hospital before such a thing happened. When I first walked in Charity Hospital in 1978, Quinn, you'll like this. I walked in there in 1978. The first case I saw in the ED as a first year medical student was a gentleman in pulmonary edema undergoing circulating, rotating tourniquets. I actually saw that happening. But I digress. I'll come back on point because the more evident and the more distressing observation was that there was one place you could stand in the hospital and you would realize that everything on your left was replicated on your right side, an exact mirror image. And as I was beginning to just observe, not see patients, obviously as a first year, but observe the care patients were receiving, the identification card either had a C or a W, and that exactly tracked where the patient was admitted. And that mirroring went all the way up through 19 floors. And it was distressing because for all the people that bristle when you hear the word structural racism, I hear the phrase, that was the most evident example I can give you by design. Let me emphasize that by design, the system intentionally separated people as a function of race. And so I give you that background story because I must tell you that so many of the most egregious things that we've seen today are not because somebody today decided I wanted to hurt someone or I don't like someone or I wanted to disqualify a population. It's because systems were put in place sometimes decades ago that fully disabled opportunity for so many. And so when you recognize that the history, not of Tulane, but the history in the Deep South, the residual consequences of the Jim Crow experience, the structural racism that existed then and still does in many places, really set out a cultural set point that continues to be operative today. And so generation after generation after generation in New Orleans 
but other cities as well. I'm not imputing a favorite city of mine. But generations are acculturated, and that's a key word, Dr. Thomas. They are acculturated to, even if it's subconsciously, to believe that there are distinct differences between people and then behave accordingly. That's why I'll go back to my, my opening statement. Never before have we had the opportunity to have these conversations with this level of frankness, with so many people listening. It's very difficult to incite culture change. Almost by definition, if you're trying to incite culture change, some event, you need something abrupt to happen in order for culture change to take place. You think about when we've seen culture change in the past, it was the civil rights movement. It was the Vietnam War. Well, you have to have something abrupt. And COVID-19 and the pandemic was that abruptness. And so now we have the window, the license to have these conversations. And we should not miss this moment. Because here's the thing that I really enjoy. And when I say enjoy it, I mean, I embrace it. I value this. We have the license to be the architects of our own near and intermediate term future. That's a rare moment. Because usually culture defines that. But again, if I'm thinking about statements I want cardio nerds to remember, don't forget this. You have the license now to be the architect of your future. What kind of future do you want? When you think about the 30 years that you'll have, you are the architect. Because you have the power to change culture now. That's everything. Thank you so much, Dr. Yancey taking us through that real imagery that we can see and just to think that we've made progress over the course of many years but there's still so many things that need to change that we must and for really empowering us as as trainees and, and sort of the future generation i wonder and it made me think, I'm, I'm not going to let that stand and i'm only going to speak up because we're so close and i know you'll let me do this please the real reason for this license we have is because we have not changed We've dressed it up differently, but fundamentally, we have not changed. And because we have not changed, we've seen the disproportionate consequences of COVID-19. We have felt the pain of social injustice because we have not changed. And so now is the opportunity to fundamentally change. If we've changed, it was very small iterative steps. That can't be the case anymore. I mean, there needs to be some piercing of the barriers. There needs to be some significant leaping occur. There needs to be something disruptive in a positive way. There needs to be a quest for something that is truly better. I've mentioned that before, but I'm coming back to it again now. We can't be comfortable with what we've seen so far. There is real change that's necessary. And again, you have a license to effectuate that change. You can make that change happen. If we look at that through the lens specifically of, let's say, cardiovascular healthcare disparities, what would you recommend for us as we think about our careers and academic medicine specifically on what we could do to help to affect that change? So thank you, Quinn, because I have wanted us to get to this point because giving thought to this, understanding what we were going to discuss this evening, it became clear to me that those in the audience that might think, oh man, this is going to be a dry discussion. How do you change diversity of clinical trials? We're having these moments of, of sharp reality up until now, and we're switching to something that really is kind of a nerdy conversation. And I say, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Because if our goal is to emerge with evidence of real change, then the only way we can do that, besides the awareness we have now, is to fundamentally change the way we do things, to change our process. And if the goal is to do something important about cardiovascular disease disparities, who are we as cardiologists? I mean, what's our defining trait? We are evidence-based professionals. Now, I gave you a lot of substance there, and I want you to remember two things about that. We are evidence-based in principle, but we are professionals in behavior. That's enormous, because if you understand that, that means that we need to generate the kind of evidence where the evidence per se 
will help us eliminate or at least fundamentally narrow the disparities. But here's the thing. As professionals, we have to have a sense of duty, a sense of ethic, that with the evidence that we generate, we execute on that evidence as a professional would to provide best care to all of those in our space. So that's why this discussion about getting diversity in clinical trials is not nerdy. It's not sterile. This is core because it really touches not only the way that we do things and the way that we understand cardiovascular medicine and science and the way we apply that to populations at risk, but it yields a responsibility. It makes us accept a duty to take this new evidence and use it differently, use it truly to impact the lives of those at risk. If we can marry those two concepts, understanding a new way to get our databases set and behaving differently with that database, everything else falls into place. So this is the conversation we've been wanting to have tonight. So Dr. Ainsley, when you bring this up, you've been successful in increasing minority representation within many cardiovascular trials. How have you been successful in recruiting them and what are some of the pitfalls you've ran into as well? So it's a great question, Victoria, because you know what? It hasn't been step one, step two, step three. It's been because I've been in the room. And if you're in the room, then the conversations are necessarily different. When you're in the room, you see, you know what? We need a center in South Carolina. We need a center in Harlem. We need a center in Detroit. We need to go to Atlanta. We need a center in New Orleans. We need centers on the south side of Chicago. But it's only because it was somebody in the room that said we're missing a critical component of the population. So what I'm telling you is that, yeah, I can give you a half dozen steps. There are FDA directives that have been written. I've published recently within the last 12 months statements about how we can achieve greater diversity. But let's start with root causes. First, there needs to be an intentional approach for every clinical trial that the trial will recruit those people that are likely to be candidates for that therapy or that device. So if those candidates represent a diverse spectrum of individuals, and you necessarily must recruit a diverse spectrum of individuals in that trial. Look at the vaccine trials, brilliant execution in those trials with very representative populations. Incredibly important. Why? Because for all the vaccine hesitancy that we still see, at least we can say, yes, there were patients that think like you and look like you in the trial. You know what? They did extremely well. That is a very validating statement to be able to make. And so it starts with intentionality, with design, and it starts with diversity of leadership. When the right people in the room, things happen. It's something that we cannot, we cannot overlook. Even for our profession, we can make all the efforts we want. And I've been a champion of these efforts of bringing in different medical students and different interns and different fellows. But the real lever, the real switch we have to turn on is what's happening in the C-suite of hospitals and what's happening in the Dean's Executive Committee of Medical Schools. When there's a diverse thought process there, when there's diversity in those rooms, that's when everything else follows suit. So Dr. Yancey, I'm hearing a lot about trust and community building with centers on the ground. And we've had the opportunity of hosting Dr. LaPrincess Brewer in one of our previous Cardinals narrative episodes, highlighting how she leveraged community-based participatory research to develop the FAITH program. Dr. Yancey, how do you think we can gain more community collaboration in conducting research, especially within communities that have so many reasons to harbor mistrust in the healthcare system due to past and present injustices? Dan, it's a simple answer. Don't ask people to come downtown. Mm. Go to their town. Don't ask them to come downtown. Go to their town. Their town may be five miles away, 10 miles away, doesn't matter. Go to their town. Bring someone from their town onto your team. And then do what we used to do at the very beginning of my career as a clinical trialist. I wanted to be certain that I was always providing some additional advantage or opportunity for the patients that I recruited in trials. I never wanted it to be a one-way street. 
I wanted the patients to know that regardless, you'll receive the best care that we can orchestrate for you, period. That generated trust. It's so important that we make the first step, that we go to the community, that we intentionally generate trust. Even today, I typically have a resident or a fellow with me at every one of my clinics, and particularly if there's a resident with me for the new time, it's always the same conversation. Why did you do that? This is what I do with the new patient. I walk in and I say, you know what? I've already studied your files. I have a pretty good sense of what's happening with you as a physician would understand it. But I'd like to know what's going on with you as a person. So give me two or three sentences. Give me your biography. I'm just going to sit back and listen. And first, the patient looks at me shell-shocked, like, what? And so I said, look, tell me where you were born, where you were educated. Tell me about your family, your significant others. Tell me about your pastimes. Tell me about what brings you joy, what brings you fear. Now, sometimes the three to five minutes of a lot, it becomes 20 minutes. But I have been benefited by some amazing narratives. And I've met some extraordinary people. And I would not have known this had I not paused. And not only raised that question, but here's a point, Dan. Built that trust. Because then they say, this guy really cares about who I am. He wants to know what I do. And my rationale for it is always the same. It gives me a framework to understand how you are experiencing your health, how you make your decisions, and what's important to you. It's never failed me. I mean, never may be a strong word, but for the most part, it's always worked. I mean, even this weekend when I'm rounding on patients, I had an advanced practice provider rounding with me. And as we parted company after the last patient, she came up to me and she said, I can't believe the way in which you engage people and talk to them about their lives. And then day to day, you remember what you talked about the day before. The patients really love, I mean, look at them. They just light up. They want you to come in the room and then they share with you so much more depth about how they're feeling and what's going on. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. I can honestly say he is not making this up. When I met him as a second year medical student, I did not even realize who he who he was. I just thought it was very interesting. Some of the data he was highlighting at that time, the Entresto trials, and he stressed to me the significance of what it means to listen, like really listen to your patients. And one of the things at that ABC conference, and this is when I was a second year medical student, so this was probably in 2013-ish, and you were highlighting with among other Association of Black Cardiology panelists about patients being specifically African-Americans and women being undertreated or managed based even though guidelines did exist. And unfortunately, we're still battling this. So why do you think we're still battling this issue? And What are your thoughts when people say we should make race-based guidelines or socioeconomic status guidelines? Yeah, so we're getting into something that's contentious, complicated, but necessary. Because we're trying to really affect a monumental change in the way we think and the way we do things. But step one is to have these conversations. Step two is to have data. And so we still need to do race-based research, but not race-based research looking for a different biology, but race-based research trying to unravel where do we see these differences that are otherwise inexplicable with the exception of bias. The same thing for gender-sex-based research, because the only way that we can move through this, and I get back to the conversation that I had with, with Dr. Yeomans earlier, What makes me excited about tonight's discussion is that the driver for us, what makes us change our behavior, is evidence. When there's evidence, who we are as a discipline prompts us to act differently. So I think that to answer your question, we have to be indefatigable. That means we cannot pause. We cannot vary. We have to be on a decided path towards generating the evidence necessary to understand why diseases are experienced differently. 
And then this is back to the point of professionalism. We have to have the character, the strength, and accept the duty to say we've deduced, we have evidence to suggest that the only reason why women are not getting ICDs as frequent as men is because there's a bias. That is unacceptable, and we need to change that. And there are many other examples I could have used. But the point is that to simply advocate doesn't work. We really need evidence. I will tell you one other thing that we have to be, we have to have some considerations here. You want your voice to be a trusted voice for your patients. And I've told you how you can do that with your patients, but also for your peers. Part of what's necessary in professionalism, and I talk about this all the time, number one is competency. Number two is civility. Number three is compassion. What does competency mean? It means that if Dr. Yeomans is going to do advanced heart failure transplant, he's going to be the best heart failure physician, the best heart failure interventionist he can possibly be. That's competence. Because once he has that competence, his voice is respected. Once he has civility, where he can stand in a room where there's controversy, where there are differences of opinion, and hold himself appropriately, shoulder square, eye-to-eye contact, managing his emotions. Because remember, they make you angry, you lose, and they win. And then compassion for all the people we see in medicine that never had an opportunity to achieve anything or that have had such misfortune come their way. To show that you can reach out, hold a hand, and let somebody know that you care. So my point is that when you truly practice professionalism, then that gives you the platform from which you can advocate for everything else that we're talking about, diversity, inclusion, equity. I had to be respected as a clinical trialist, as a heart failure specialist, to be in the room for those registries and trials when we started to advocate for diversity of sites and a diversity of investigators. That has been something that's worked well. And those kind of lessons are learned the hard way. You lead with your professionalism, and then you take on your advocacy. Dr. Yancey, the topic of healthcare disparities brings us back to professional diversity. We had a wonderful discussion with Dr. Quinn Capers about the value that diversity adds in several domains, clinical excellence, research innovation, and health equity. On that topic, you mentioned how we increase diversity among physicians to include more individuals who are underrepresented in medicine. And you recently wrote an article in JAMA titled Diversity in Medical Schools, a Need for a New Bold Approach that perhaps we should establish a new medical school specifically in HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities. Could you give us a little background, the historical context for HBCUs and why might they be fertile ground strategically to build medical universities? I have this conversation. One needs to understand what prompted the genesis of historically black colleges and universities. There was no place else for people to go. And so starting with that birth, a birth out of necessity, a birth out of fierceness, a birth with a deep intention to have a different experience, that culture, again, going back to one of my favorite words, persists even today. What is so remarkable about the HBCU is that the HBCU recognizes raw talent, refines the talent, and then propels the talent for success. Not every university will acknowledge raw talent. If the talent isn't already refined and ready to execute day one, it gets lost. And so that's why the HBCU is important, not because it attracts a certain person, but because the defining attribute is to seek out the raw talent, refine it, and get it to the next place. But You know, one of the last things I want to share with you about this conversation, particularly since you put it in the context of our own professional diversity, the last thing I want to tell you about this is that be careful. We don't want to advocate the cause of diversity simply for representativeness. It's 2021. Representativeness is no longer what we're interested in. 
It pains me to hear anyone say, well, this is the first fill-in-the-blank to ever do this. We should be way beyond that. The reason for diversity in our professional space is not for representativeness. It's about excellence. The road ahead of us is so challenging that we really need to think about getting the best ideas in the room, no matter where the origin is. The diversity that needs to drive us right now, and I hope this is another one of the things you write down and remember, is diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, and diversity of execution. We cannot have sameness anymore. That will not be sufficient for the world in which we're entering. We have to have diversity of thought, diversity of ideation, and diversity in execution. Thank you so much, Dr. Yancey. Thinking about all the ways in which diverse thought can really make a team better is so, so important. When we think about academic medicine and specifically diversifying academic medicine, when we start to think about careers in academic medicine, a lot of times we'll think about kind of three realms, research, clinical, and patient care. You have really been a person who's been able to be a behemoth in all three of those realms. We were just wondering and curious, how were you able to master all three and how are you able to facilitate this? And what advice might you have for trainees wanting to stay in academic medicine that have a passion for teaching and for mentorship, a passion for caring for patients, and who hope to one day impact change in a leadership role that may potentially go down and have effects on clinical trials as well? I'm going to answer this question in a way that you're not expecting. I want everyone's rapid attention right now. Don't do what I did. Do not do what I did. I sacrificed too much of self. I took too much time away from family. I followed my aspirations pathologically. There's too much in life to live for to allow that to happen. I know it's difficult to hear and it's difficult for me to articulate and say there were some things I did that I should have done differently. And what endorses that is that I... I lost my first wife prematurely. We were both 39. Breast cancer was uh, her mode of death. My daughters were six and seven. I would do anything to go back and have just one more weekend with my first wife. One of those weekends when I went in and worked all weekend on an experiment or a paper. So I really challenge you. Don't try to be all things to all people. My drive served me well, but it came at a price. So I want you to think carefully about what it is you really want to do. I want you to think about how we started this conversation. You talked about what was important. Dan, five children. I mean, you have twins. Quentin, you have the most beautiful daughter there is. That is what's important. My daughters and I are, are foolishly close. And I gave them every nanosecond of my time. But nevertheless, my career professionally came at a price personally. And I want you to think very carefully. I'll go back to what I said before. How will you spend the next 30 years? Make certain that your family is always, always first. And then you'll be successful. Dr. Ainsley, thank you so much for this talk and this conversation and really highlighting and the time, the personal stories that might have been painful, but also just reminding us to always go back to our families and what matters most and keeping them first. And anytime I talk to you, tell you talk to me about your girls and... Um, <laughs> I, I still right. remember you being like, I, I was going to talk to you like I was, you were my daughter one time. And I was just like, oh, it made me straighten up again. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what would you say of how to find that balance? I know you kind of highlighted it, but I have to ask with when you're striving to make such huge leaps, as you mentioned, and for people who are trying to push this health equity how do we find this balance of pushing yeah. for these major leaps in our family? No, Victoria, it's a great question. 
the standard deviation for the balance is not 0.1, it's 10. Point being is that there are times where you really do have to make be all in. And you really do have to be in the lab, in the office, working a whole weekend to bring closure to something. But then there's balance. And there's another time when you take the weekend off and you're there. And one thing that I did in particular, when I was home, briefcase was hidden, television was off, eyes were glued on the girls. Whatever they wanted to talk about, whatever they wanted to play, whatever they wanted to read, if it was homework, eyes 100% focused. And so it really was that quality quantity thing. I'm not trying to act as if I know the blueprint for being a good parent other than a lot of love, but you just have to be able to know when you need to put all your cards in the center of the table professionally and when you need to fold that hand and go to your family. And it's just one of those things. It's, it's a um, empiric thing. You figure it out over time, but if you listen, your family will tell you when you're out of sync. This has been a incredibly valuable discussion, both professionally and personally. And, and Dr. Yancey, you're absolutely right. We, especially with, with everything that's going on, Carter Nerds and our professional fellowships, and we're just working full time. And even just, just recently, we had a similar theme that Dr. Capers told us really got to focus on your family. And Amith and I took that to heart. I actually took like a full weekend off from everything. And I realized you're never going to regret that. You can, you, you're never going to regret that time you spent with your kids. Uh, although, ahead, I, although I will say when he talked about how every Saturday morning he makes up for the busy part of the week by making breakfast in bed for his wife. And when my wife heard that, it didn't necessarily help my relationship. No, <laughs> that's, that, that's Dr. Yeah. Capers, not me. I, I, Look, I know Quinn. I, I, I mean, I, I know Quinn. I want some evidence. <laughs> I want some confidence intervals on that statement. <laughs> I think it probably crosses the line of identity. <laughs> uh, well, this is just been... meaning it happened once. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may have been said, but now. It's locked in a podcast and everybody's listening to it. So, <laughs> but now I have something to strive to either way. But your words are just so. I was commenting to Amit offline. There's a before and there's an after. And sometimes when you have a conversation with somebody, they just completely change the way you think about things. And so for me, there's a before Dr. Yancey and then now there's an after meeting Dr. Yancey. And I just want to thank you so much for your time and particularly also Dr. Humans, Dr. Thomas and the PA chapter from ACC. And, and honestly, for my partner, Amit, I'll just thank you right now. This, this was your brainchild, and I'm, I'm really here benefiting from it. And I'm so glad that we have this recorded and that we're going to be able to share it with the world. So thank you all for being here. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Yancey, real quick before we go, I must ask you, yeah. what makes your heart flutter about designing impactful research or consolidating available data to develop guidelines. I got to tell you, I hope that my heart doesn't flutter because I'm, I <laughs> exercise vigorously. So I know that people that exercise vigorously are at risk for paroxysmal or AF. And I worry about that sometimes on my weekends when I'm spending really extended amounts of time cycling, swimming, running, et cetera. So I'm going to try not to look for that heart flutter thing. But, but I will tell you in a more serious way, in a more serious way. What what really enthuses me right now is the idea that things really may be different. After all of this time, we may be evolving to something different. Again, I'll be serious once more. It's a clear statement. I've lived longer than I will live. And so in whatever time that remains... Maybe I'll see it. I already see the beginning of it. But here's the thing. I'll know it. I'll know that we're going to a different place. And I'll know that the little 10-year-old kid that saw this one black doctor hustling to take care of 50 patients a day, seven days a week, and wants to be a doctor, there'll be a different path for that little kid. I'll know it 
when I think about that young faculty member that said, why are all these black people showing up with heart failure at such an early age? And why don't they have coronary disease? What's wrong with their ventricles? And all the inertia I had to go through to get traction with that research protocol. I'll know it when there is a mid-career faculty member who says, I want to be a leader of men and women in cardiovascular medicine. And then you've got to spend the next decade looking for that opportunity because there's just something about you that people are not willing to say, yes, you can be a leader. What I'll know, maybe I won't see it, but what, what I will know is that all of those things will be different. The opportunity for the young child, the quality of the science for the emerging professional, and the opportunities for leadership for the mature professional. I will know whether I see it or not, that all of that will be different. So I'm not counting my days yet, Quentin. You can't have my job. <laughs> but I do know that I have to be aware that I don't have as much time as I've had. But I'm not anxious about that because I know that the time that will evolve will be a very different kind of time and space. And that's a good thing. Dr. Yancey, thank you so, so much for everything that you've offered today. You've been a mentor to so many of us and I've learned so much from this conversation. We are so appreciative at the Cardio Nerds for you spending your time with us today. And we just can't thank you, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Hello. Hi, I'm Dr. Annabelle Santos Bergman. I am a cardiologist at Rush University Medical Center, but my official title is the medical director of the Rush Heart Center for Women, as well as the vice chief of academic affairs at Rush University Medical Center for the section of cardiology. I've been at Rush for 31 years, and I am also the current governor of the Illinois chapter of the American College of Cardiology, which I just began my term. And I'm so excited to be a part of this incredible organization. We are very busy doing all kinds of scholarly activities. And we're also trying to improve diversity and inclusion and equity in the state of Illinois, as well as the Midwest region. As a matter of fact, one of the best programs that we had was a Midwest regional program. It started out as a Midwest regional, but because of the pandemic, it became international because we invited young high school students to see what a female cardiologist does. So we featured several Midwest cardiologists from all over the Midwest, such as Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Ohio. And this was headed up by Dr. Deirdre Medina, who was Matina, who was in Michigan at the time, but then she moved to the Cleveland Clinic. And so she decided to increase the number of women going into cardiology by trying to attract them to see what how wonderful women cardiologists are. So we featured a day in the life of cardi female cardiologists, and it was amazing. We had Dr. Claire Duvernois from the University of Michigan um, really being bad. She had her group of female interventional cardiologists, and they looked like the A-team. They looked scary. It was a wonderful video. But that was one of the fun things that we did. We are doing other things in the next few years that will try to improve diversity, equity, inclusion, not only in Illinois, but of course, the National American College of Cardiology. So I'm really looking forward to being the governor of Illinois ACC. And one of the best things about being the governor is that in Chicago alone, we have amazing internationally renowned cardiologists, including my chief, Dr. Kim Williams, who is another African-American cardiologist that's the head of cardiology in Chicago. And you'll be hearing from another African-American chief of cardiology in Chicago, Dr. Clyde Yancey. But Dr. Williams is uh, my boss, and I have to 
you know, give a few wonderful words about him because he is part of the National ACC Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, along with Dr. Claude Yancey. But Dr. Williams is not only my boss, but he's my mentor, my colleague. He was my attending when I was an intern at University of Chicago, and we've been friends ever since. And he started out in a poor neighborhood in Chicago and he had asthma and he, there was no access to care. And he really was very upset about that. And he decided when he grows up that he was going to be a cardiologist or a doctor so that he could try to improve access to care for poor people and uh, African Americans. So he is a hero to me for doing all the things that he's been doing. We do a lot of things for the West Side, Chicago, and he is making some really amazing changes. But another world-renowned cardiologist is down the road for me, Dr. Clyde Yancey, who I know is going to be interviewed here. So I'd like to officially introduce him as one of the members of our Illinois chapter of ACC. So Dr. Clyde Yancey, the major stat professor of medicine, and he's also professor of medical social sciences. He's the chief of the division of cardiology at Northwestern University at the Feinberg School of Medicine. He's also the associate director of the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute at the Northwestern Memorial Hospital here in Chicago. He is a world-renowned cardiologist, and he has received recognition for clinical and research expertise in the field of heart failure and has additional interest in cardiomyopathy, heart valve diseases, hypertension, and prevention. He is an active member of the American Heart Association, past president of that organization, and the American College of Cardiology, American College of Physicians, and Heart Failure Society of America. He has written over 250 peer-reviewed manuscripts, including numerous book chapters, editorials, review articles, and he's a consultant for the FDA, the NIH, the AHRQ, and the PCORI. He has received numerous Best Physician and Best Teaching Awards. In addition to that, he is one of the most articulate speakers I have ever heard. He is a friend for all of the cardiologists in Chicago, and we are so fortunate to be among one of his colleagues in Chicago because we can always go to him and say, hey, Clyde, can you um, speak for one of our conferences? And he always says yes. He is the nicest, kindest, most warmest cardiologist I've ever met. We are so fortunate to have him here locally in Chicago. And uh, now with the Zoom and with webinars, he is a friend to everybody in the world. So I am so happy to be introducing him for this recording. Thank you so much. 